0: Well, how's everybody doing? Good. I hope that you're ready to receive with meekness the engrafted word, as we always should be. I'm excited to begin winding down the book of Genesis, as we're about to do, because it gives us an opportunity to look back and... It's a bit bittersweet, sad, and joyful at the same time to finish a book and close it out. And as we enter into these last few chapters, and particularly chapter 48 today, which we'll be covering, I want to look back at Jacob's life before we dive into this chapter. Jacob takes up a significant portion of the book of Genesis it's about 21 chapters which is more than Abraham and Isaac combined so the Lord's put a focal point an exclamation point as it were on the life of Jacob and something that we should pay attention to this is really if you if you step back for a minute I've been sort of taking a 10,000 foot view of our coverage of Genesis and the story of Jacob in particular and looking back on the story with a, a kind of fondness and just a, it has a real particular majesty and glory about it. The, the actual events that occurred and the way that they were written and disclosed to us. It's a, an epic tale that demonstrates to us both the loving kindness, the faithfulness and the manifest wisdom of God. But we, we tend to treat when we get used to and comfortable with the scriptures, often in such a way that we treat it as dry and cold and rigid. But particularly these Old Testament books and the book of Genesis, they're stories. They're real, living, at great stories. I mean, riveting stories, if you pay attention carefully and study the details of them and think on them and meditate on them. They're incredible stories. God loves stories. You know, he doesn't just give us doctrine in the form of explanation. He teaches us principles through story. It says in Psalm 111, great are the works of the Lord, studied or sought out by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And so he he really does. The Lord writes the best stories. And even the stories that we see now, we see through a glass darkly, and one day we'll get to see from the other side of the canvas the overarching main story that he was writing all along, and it'll be glorious. So we should appreciate we should appreciate the Bible and Genesis in particular and the story of Jacob specifically because it's both practically beautiful and spiritually powerful. It's just a beautiful story if you just take it at face value. But then add on top of that that the Lord is communicating to us through it eternal magnificent truths. So that's just a bit of an aside before we do some reflection. On the story of Jacob. I tend to think in abstract philosophical ways like that but I hope that you find that it gives a good texture and and context as we as we think about this story and reflect on it. So let's pray and then we'll go back and examine some themes in these past chapters and do a little bit of an overview of what we've already covered and then get into Genesis 48. Father, truly you do write the best, the most magnificent, the most glorious stories. Wonderful are your works, worthy to be remembered. We pray that you'd put us in remembrance today of your kindness, of your severity, of all of your character and your ways, that you would open to us the scriptures and speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. This is what we long for today. We pray that you would do it. It's a supernatural work. We want to enjoy the story because it's beautiful, but we want to enjoy it more deeply in our spirits because it's spiritual and it's the eternal word that you've given to us. So bless it. Make it accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it forth today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we traverse back through Jacob's life, there are four different themes I want to examine. So Jacob failed spectacularly, number one. Number two, God disciplined him severely. Number three, Jacob grew significantly. And number four, God blessed him abundantly. So he failed spectacularly. We see this more towards the beginning of the story, but he still does similar things going on throughout until the end of his life. At the beginning, he was a perpetual deceiver and a cheater. That's the meaning of his name. He connived his brother out of his birthright, and then he outright lied and deceived in order to get the blessing Later on in the story, he lies to his brother Esau and says that he's going to go follow him to Seir, and he doesn't do it. Instead, he goes to Shechem. So he's a perpetual deceiver and cheater. He's adulterous and sexually immoral. He has two wives and two concubines. But maybe the most conspicuous thing About Jacob in terms of his his moral failure was the dereliction of his duties as both a husband and a father and this point is a little more subtle it's not so much stated explicitly but you see the effects of it continually throughout the story so he he does go instead of going to Seir he lies to Esau and he goes to Shechem instead and he was supposed to go all the way to Bethel but he settled in Shechem. Then after that, there's the defiling of Dina. And when we looked at that story, we considered the fact that there was significant passivity with Jacob that that event would occur. He wasn't shepherding either his wife or his daughter correctly because the, his daughter Dina was going out into the city to be among the women of the city and to see what they were doing. She had an interest in and a love for the world it seems. And so that incident happened and he was responsible in some measure for that. And then after it happens, when he should have stepped in and he should have taken charge when they were talking to the the men of Shechem and trying to resolve this matter, instead we see his sons doing the talking for him. And he's just kind of sitting back and he doesn't play much of a prominent role there. And so as a result of that, Simeon and Levi exact their vengeance on the men of Shechem and they do this evil thing to them and they slaughter them all. And so that was because of Jacob's, both his passivity in that specific instance that he didn't step up. But it indicates really a pattern. Thanks, Nate. (laughs) There's a pattern that leads to his sons Simeon and Levi even being able to do something like that. So the the fact that they were men of violence was a result of Jacob's failure as a father. We see later that there were foreign gods in the household. Rachel took foreign gods from Laban when they left and evidently they remained in the household for. A number for a certain amount of time until Genesis 35 when he finally says we're putting out the foreign gods but from then until then they remained in the household either he didn't know about it which he should have or he knew about it and he condoned it he winked at it which he shouldn't have and then there was the selling of Joseph into slavery and you say well how was Jacob responsible for that? Well, he was responsible in the same way that he was responsible for Simeon and Levi's Levi's violence and vengeance. There was a neglect in his fatherly duties that all of his older sons would be such men who would conspire together against their younger brother. He was responsible for raising these children and evidently he raised them in such a way that they thought there was no problem doing that. You also see that he shows Joseph favoritism. And then there's the incident with Judah and Tamar, which Ben covered. Well, how was he responsible for that? Well, again, it's the same thing. The fact that Judah was this type of man was a result of the way that he was raised. And so Jacob bears responsibility for this. So these are, these are pretty significant failures, And the lord doesn't wink at these things so jacob failed spectacularly and god disciplined him severely now you might think off the top of your head well what did god do to him explicitly he didn't call fire down i don't remember any sort of serious line in the sand moment but a lot of times the disciplinary hand of the lord comes through natural consequences And so we can't just think that because the Lord didn't rain down fire like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah, that there was no discipline involved. Many times, he disciplines through cause and effect. Think about this. All of the foolish choices and life decisions that you made, either before you came to Christ or earlier on in your walk, he doesn't just erase those. He erases them in the sense that he remembers our sins and iniquities no more. But he doesn't completely absolve us of the consequences of those things. Those choices that we made and those things that we've done foolishly, sinning against him, he, in loving discipline, allows us to experience the consequences of those things in order to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of his dear son. We might even say, well, it'd be nice if he just, if he just rescued me from all of the, the stupid decisions that I made and I didn't have to suffer or experience any difficulty because of those things. But he uses those things to sanctify us, to grow us in grace and the knowledge of him. He does it in love. So one thing that it appears that the Lord did specifically and it wasn't necessarily just a consequence of his actions was the way that the Lord ordained Laban to cheat and deceive Jacob. That was sort of a tit for tat thing. Jacob had done that his whole life and then he gets to Laban and and then Laban cheats him says work for me seven years I'll give you Leah and then he sneaks Rachel I mean I'll give you Rachel and then he sneaks Leah in there and so he says well okay work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. That's a consequence directly from the hand of the Lord. But beyond that, there's continual household strife. You see, we saw that when we looked at the chapters at Rachel and Leah. And Rachel is bitter because she can't have children. And Leah is bitter because Jacob loves Rachel more. And there's a constant fighting in that. And imagine trying to rear children in that environment when there's just bitterness and bickering continually. Surely that had something to do with the way that those men turned out. There's Jacob's fear of his brother Esau. He's afraid of him for many years after he steals the birthright and the blessing. And he's afraid of Esau continually. There was the defiling of Dinah, which we already discussed, but that was a consequence or a painful consequence for him, for his neglect. There's trouble brought on him by Simeon and Levi's vengeance in the incident at Shechem. It says, he says, You've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. And then he's afraid that they're going to find him and destroy him because of that. Then there's Reuben, his firstborn, who lays with his concubine Bilhah. And then all the sons are responsible for Joseph's disappearance, his being sold into slavery. And beyond that, the Lord lets him think that Joseph was dead for many years up until the end of his life. And later, towards the end, he he fears that he's going to lose Benjamin in that incident. And the Lord lets that happen. And then there's his own testimony that David mentioned last week, when he's speaking to Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. So if we stop there, then it would be quite a grim picture. A sobering picture. The Lord rewards every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. But we don't stop there. At the same time, we must learn to recognize the Lord's disciplinary hand in many of life's difficulties. And it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose, as we said. So, Jacob failed spectacularly. God disciplined severely. And then Jacob grew significantly. How did he do that? Where do we see that? He makes a vow to the Lord at Bethel, when the Lord first appears to him there, that the Lord will be his God and he will give him a tenth. So that's an act of faith, an act of worship. He deals more honestly with Laban than he had dealt with anyone else in his life prior. So as we trace this, you begin to see more and more spiritual and moral growth in Jacob's life. He at least makes an effort, though not a full effort, to obey the Lord's command to return from Laban to the land of his kindred. The Lord appears to him when he's with Laban, he says, return to the land of your kindred. And, But we know that instead of going all the way to Bethel, he settled in Shechem. But he did make an effort there. He turns to the Lord and prays to the Lord for deliverance from Esau when he's fearing him. And then... Genesis 35, after the incident at Shechem, is probably the most clear and concrete example. I think it's a real turning point in Jacob's life because he turns and he commands his household. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Wash your clothes, purify yourselves. We're going up to Bethel to obey the Lord. That's really the first the most significant instance that we see of him taking charge of his household and saying, we are going to do this in obedience to the Lord. And then right after that, we see that he names his first son, Benjamin. It says as Rachel was dying that she named him Ben-Anoi, but he, but he called him Benjamin. That was the first of his sons that he had named. So he took charge in that moment. He said, no, this is what we're going to call him. Obedience, it's obedience. He's beginning to obey the Lord more and more. And then, at the last, we see this, which we're about to cover shortly. He blesses his sons and his grandsons in obedience and in faith. So he failed spectacularly. God disciplined him severely. Jacob grew significantly. And this is the best part. This is the best part. God blessed him abundantly. He extends to him the Abrahamic covenant at Bethel and the promises, the promise to be with him till he goes to the end of his life. He multiplies his seed after him. He has 12 sons. The Lord gives him 12 sons. In spite of all of that, the family, all, the sexual immorality and adultery and the family strife, he gives him 12 sons. The Lord blesses him in that way and he's faithful to his covenant. He multiplies his possessions and his livestock when he he's with Laban. He leaves with all of this stuff more than what he came with. He protects him from Laban. Laban tries to scheme against Jacob and deceive him, and the Lord protects him from it. And Jacob recognizes that the Lord protected him from it. The Lord protects him from Esau, who doesn't try to kill him. He protects him from the Canaanites and the Perizzites after the incident at Shechem. It says that the Lord kept him. He, he protected him from those so Simeon and Levi made him stink to them and made him a reproach to them but the Lord protected him from them as they passed through the land the Lord protects his son Joseph from death in the incident with the brothers this is maybe one of the most incredible ones he delivers his son from evil Joseph and by that I mean that Joseph is a righteous man If you look back at the incident of what happened with Potiphar's wife, what kind of incredible character and moral fiber he showed and he must have had in order to withstand that kind of temptation. We talked about that when we examined that. And that was in spite of his his father's negligence. The Lord exalts Joseph to the highest place in Egypt. He uses Joseph to preserve their family in a famine he reveals to Jacob at the end of his life that his son's still alive, and then he lets him see his son and his grandsons at the end of his life. So we must learn to recognize the Lord's gracious hand in many of life's blessings. So Jacob failed spectacularly. God disciplined him severely, but Jacob grew significantly, and the Lord blessed him abundantly. Those are the four, four, four major points, I think, that really stand out from his life. As it says in Romans eleven twenty two, Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Both of those things are necessary. <clears throat> they're necessary to guard us from failure, his severity, and they're necessary to comfort us in failure. His kindness. It says in Psalm 66, verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out. To a place of abundance. And then Psalm 103. I said a moment ago that the Lord rewards every man according to his works. And according to the fruit of his deeds. And that's true in one sense. And then in another sense this is also true. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us good news it's both of those things there's a those things must be held together in suspense there's a severity to the Lord that he will discipline the son he loves and so we don't act presumptuously carelessly foolishly but at the same time when we do we rest in his kindness and we take comfort that he removes our sins as far as the East is from the West and he blesses us even in the midst of discipline just like he did Jacob So you can go ahead and look at Genesis 48 now. We'll examine this story a little more carefully. Jacob comes here to the end of his life. And he's facing death. There's a moment, the whole chapter is really, it's a moment of pause and reflection for Jacob as he's considering, he's on his deathbed. He realizes it. He's considering his life. This is good for us to do on occasion. It's good for us to do. I wonder if you do this. I do it sometimes. It, it de- depends, particular moments, you know, significant events, th- things that happen. I bought a new car yesterday and <clears throat> as I was thinking back, I had we had had our old van for five, almost six years and I began thinking back At all the Lord's goodness and faithfulness to me and to my family and so it's good and my own failures my personal sins and mistakes and the way the Lord disciplined me the way the Lord had been gracious to me and blessed me it's good to pause at certain moments and to look back and reflect and so that's what Jacob does here let's read it and then we'll explain It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. So the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, and Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be, also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So there are three things that, Joseph, that Jacob does here in reflection. He looks back to the past. He looks around at the present. And he looks ahead at the future. He looks back to the past at two things. There's the blessing of God and the passing of Rachel. The blessing of God, which was through the Abrahamic covenant. Verses 3 and 4, it says, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So there were three provisions in the original Abrahamic covenant. There was seed, there was land, and there was blessing. He covers the seed here. I will make you fruitful, multiply you, and will make you a company of peoples. He covers land I will give this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. But he doesn't mention the third provision of blessing. When the Lord said to Abraham, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And in Genesis 22, so why is that? Why doesn't he mention that here? Because it's in the Abrahamic covenant, it's in Genesis 22, the Lord says, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's because... The blessing was to come through the line of Judah, through Christ. We see that Paul says in Galatians 3 that he's not referring to seeds, plural, or offsprings, but seed or offspring, referring to Christ. And so he doesn't include that here when he's reiterating this covenant and he's passing it along to Joseph because Christ was to come through the line of Judah. So he remembers this Blessing of God and then he remembers the passing of Rachel through the birth of Benjamin. He remembers both his greatest heavenly affection and his greatest earthly affection appropriate to do at the end of the life. So he looks back at the past and he looks around at the present. It says, In verse eight, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And here it is. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So remember Jacob's failure as a father. Remember God's discipline on him for his failure. But now God has not dealt with him according to his sins or repaid him according to his iniquities. He gives him this blessed and undeserved gift at the end of his life. Not only have you let me see, know that my son's alive, see my son, but I've seen my grandsons likewise. So he looks back at the past, he looks around at the present, and he looks ahead at the future. You see, he's thinking here generationally. At the end of his life, he's thinking beyond himself. We we tend not to do this we don't really have so much of a connection, most of us, to those who have gone before us. To Besides grandparents, maybe great-grandparents, but great-great-grandparents, or beyond that, the generations before. We tend in our culture not to really connect ourselves. And the same thing is true with going forward. We think about our kids, maybe our grandkids, but what about great-grandkids, or great-great-grandkids, or all the generations after us? We don't Think about that in the same way that they did here, but it's good to. We should, because it doesn't just end with us. And so he does that here. There's some question among scholars as to whether Genesis 48 and 49 are two separate accounts, two separate events, or whether they're the same event. I think that they're the same event and i think that because it seems that jacob takes here the blessing of the firstborn which would have gone to reuben and he gives it to ephraim and manasseh the double portion of the firstborn and this is because of the evil of his other sons you see it when you get into chapter 49 and he talks about reuben who went up and went up to his couch and up to his bed and laid with his concubine and then so he skips over him he doesn't get the first the the firstborn blessing the birthright. And then he skips over Simeon and Levi. He recalls their violence at Shechem and he skips over them for the birthright and he gives it here to Ephraim and Manasseh first. And then you see in 49 he skips over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi and he does bless Judah. Which is interesting because it seems like that Judah repented at the end of the situation with, with Judah and uh, Tamar. And so he ends up blessing Judah But he doesn't get the blessing of the firstborn. That goes here to Ephraim and Manasseh. And it's interesting and seems a bit strange that he adopts them. That's that's what's happening in those verses. In verses 5 and 6, when it says, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. So he's, ta- he's taking them as his own children. And we see this later in the 12 tribes. It's the half tribe of, Ru- uh, of Ephraim and the half tribe of Manasseh. And so what he does, he takes them and he places them on Jacob's knees or between his knees, depending on the translation. This was the common custom that they did for adoption. And so the young, these were young men. It may sound a little bit strange that they were sitting on his knees or they were between his knees, but they weren't babies at this time. They were at least 17 years old because Jacob was in the land for 17 years. And these two were born before the famine happened. So they were at least 17, probably older. Matthew Henry thinks 21. So they're they're young men at this time. And the important thing to note here is the spiritual picture. The spiritual picture. We've seen already that Joseph is a type, a picture of Christ. He's a picture of Christ as he goes down to Egypt. He's a picture of Christ in that he went to death. He didn't really die, but his father thought he died. There's a picture there. And then he's a picture here. As the firstborn among many brothers. It says that about Christ. We read it. That he should be the firstborn among many brethren. And so the picture is that we have received adoption as sons. That we enjoy the covenant blessings. Just like Ephraim and Manasseh here. Because of Joseph, they were adopted. And adoption, obviously, is a common scriptural theme. John says in his gospel to as many as believed him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We've received adoption as sons. So he adopts them and then he does this other strange thing where he puts Ephraim before Manasseh. And the text is careful to emphasize that he does this intentionally. You don't see it so much in the ESV It's a poor translation in verse 14, but in other translations, it says that he crossed his hands wittingly, knowingly. He he did it on purpose and intentionally. He did this. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was blessing the younger before the older and that he was giving him the better blessing. Now, why he did this, practically speaking, we can't tell, except that maybe he had some sort of revelation from God that's not disclosed to us in the text. But the symbolism again here, the symbolism is significant. This is a common theme throughout the Bible, God choosing the younger rather than the firstborn. Abel was chosen over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Abraham over Nahor and Haran, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Moses over Aaron, and David and Solomon over their older brothers. So, why is that? Why does the Lord cause that to happen so many times? Why does He Himself do it? Two answers. The first comes from 1 Corinthians, verse 26 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. So that's one reason. Because God does things sometimes backwards and upside down than the way that we think they should be done. And then another reason that he gives is in the, the choosing of David in 1 Samuel 16, when David's chosen over his older brothers, the Lord gives an explanation here. In 1 Samuel sixteen six, it says, when they came, he looked on Eliab, that was one of David's older brothers, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees: man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." The Lord looks at the heart. So that's another reason why he does it. He can see things that we can't see, and he looks on the inside. Another significant picture in this putting Ephraim before Manasseh is the the picture of Jew and Gentile. So Gentiles, us as Gentiles, we were born into the family after the Jews, grafted in, adopted. But we've become greater in number and enjoyed the better blessings of the new covenant. Not that the blessings aren't available to the Jews, but in a large part, the Jews have been hardened and they don't believe in the Christ and so they don't enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. So that's the picture here. The Gentiles come later, they're more numerous and they enjoy better blessing. That's what happened here. Ephraim, he was the second born, but he was greater in number and he enjoyed better blessing. This was eventually realized many years later when you look at the counts, the, the numbers of that were in the tribes, Ephraim is greater in number than the tribe of Manasseh, and greater in stature, in name, in significance, because his name became a metonym for the northern kingdom of Israel, so a lot of times when you look in the Psalms, you look in the prophets, and the Lord says, Ephraim is my Firstborn Ephraim is my chosen. He's talking about the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel after the split. They're called, they're just all called Ephraim. So that's a fulfillment of the blessing that Jacob gives here. <clears throat> and the last part about this, perhaps the most important part, is that Jacob blessed them by faith. This was an act of faith which sounds a little bit strange at first glance. But if you look over in Hebrews 11 it says that to us. In Hebrews 11:21 it says by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And that's all it says about Jacob. It doesn't talk about him blessing his other sons. It says specifically that he blessed the sons of Joseph in faith. So he does bow himself to the, in, t- over his staff towards the face of the earth. You see that in verse 12. It says, Joseph removed them from Jacob's knees and Jacob bowed himself with his face to the earth. So he's doing, he's, he's worshiping and acknowledging the Lord as he's doing this. He's consciously doing this in the presence of God. But how was it by faith? What does that mean that he did this by faith? Why was it by faith that he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh? The answer is that he, Jacob, had not yet received what was promised, but he saw it afar off. So he only had 12 children, but the the promise was multiplication. It was companies of peoples and land that he hadn't yet possessed in full. And so he didn't receive it. It says this in Hebrews about multiple of the patriarchs, that though they didn't receive the blessing, but they saw it from afar off. So he saw the covenant promise of God afar off, Though he hadn't experienced it in its fullness and he believed God that he would fulfill it and thus he gives this blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh in faith. Believing that God would fulfill the provisions of the covenant that he originally made beyond his lifetime after he was gone. A fascinating thing about this is What Jacob chose to remember about his life, and what the Lord chose to remember about his life. When Jacob reflects on his own life, he remembers preeminently the covenant promises of God. That's what happens in those first few verses. That's what he says to Joseph when he's reflecting back on his life. Yes, he remembers Rachel, but before that, and primarily, he remembers that, that covenant promise of God. And when God reflects on Jacob's life, he remembers preeminently Jacob's faith in that covenant promise. It's awesome. So Jacob really finishes well. He finishes well. He had a poor start. He started poorly, but he finished valiantly. This is much better than starting valiantly and finishing poorly which is very common. We've seen it even here. We've seen people at Rivertown start well, and they've gone out from us to prove that they were never of us. But the Lord is more concerned, not so much with failures in starting, but success in finishing by faith and Jacob died in faith says in hebrews these all died in faith he proved the faithfulness of god so what's the the takeaway for us is that we must finish well too let's finish well it's good to take a moment and to reflect back and see what have been my failures what has been the gracious hand of the Lord in disciplining me for those failures? Have I repented of those failures? Am I growing and allowing His discipline to work what He intends for it to work? My correction, my sanctification, my growth in grace and the knowledge of Him, my obedience to Him in faith. And how has He graciously blessed me in the midst of my failures? We reflect back on those things, take inventory. And we seek to finish well. And as we seek to finish well, there's two things that we always must keep in mind. I read it earlier, the Romans 8 passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we're going to see here the sovereignty of God. Two things, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. In this passage, we see the sovereignty of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He says it in past tense, as though it's already happened. It's a certain and a final thing. All who the Father gives to me will come to me. And all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. I'll raise them up at the last day, Jesus said. He says, Paul says to the Philippians, he says, I'm convinced of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Peter, we read this text last week, but there is God's sovereign. Assurance of perseverance seen here as well. As it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. And listen to this. Who, this is us, By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, but this is why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. God will be faithful to conform those who belong to them to the image of Christ and to present them holy and blameless before him on that day. So there's the Lord's sovereignty we always keep in mind and then our responsibility that likewise we keep in mind that passage i referenced earlier romans 11:22 when it's speaking of the israelites who were hardened and they fell away after christ because they rejected him and then the gentiles grafted in it says in verse 22 note then the kindness <clears throat> and the severity of god severity towards those who have fallen but god's kindness to you provided you continue In his kindness otherwise you too will be cut off a lot of people try to make sense of these twin truths by pitting them against each other but we just say yes to both he will sovereignly bring me to the end faithfully and I must persevere and continue in the faith It's my responsibility to do so. It says in Colossians 1, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. It says in Hebrews 10, right after the warning of going on and sinning intentionally and deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, he gives that warning. And then he concludes the chapter with this. Hebrews 10.35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of them which believe unto the saving of the soul. That's how the chapter ends. And the last one to highlight is 1 Corinthians 9. And Paul is describing the life of faith as a race. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So as we run, let us remember both the kindness and the severity of God. To guard us to guard us from despair in our failures and to guard us from carelessness, presumptuousness in sinning. And let us be able to say with Paul what he says here to Timothy at the end of his life. This, sh- this is our goal. This is our goal. For everyone, everyone in this room, this should be your goal to be able to say at the end of your life. Always should be the trajectory that you're aiming for. Continually in mind. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I want to leave some space, some time for just a quiet reflection. I'm not going to play any music. It's going to be totally silent. We don't do this. We're afraid to be quiet and alone with our own thoughts so much, to not have music playing, to not have, be talking to someone, not be on our phone reading something, but just sit and reflect. So we're going to do that after I pray. I invite you to bow your head after I pray and reflect on your own life, reflect on the life of Jacob and the way that God dealt with him, all the things that we discuss and reflect on your own life and anything that you need to deal with before the Lord, anything that you can praise him and rejoice over in his presence. Let's pray together. I'll pray and then leave some quiet time and then we'll sing after that. Father, What a comforting and a sobering truth. Both of these things. We thank you. Thank you for the example of Jacob. We thank you that you've left that glorious story in your word as an example for us to look at so that we can learn from and avoid the pitfalls and the mistakes and the sins that he committed so that we can aim for and pour our efforts into the successes like his in living by faith, walking in obedience to you. We thank you and we praise you for your loving hand of discipline. Whoever does not discipline his son hates him. We thank you that you discipline us. That one psalm says, you've chastened me sore, but you haven't given my soul over to death. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you love us too much to allow us to continue in sin and folly, that you discipline us by your gracious hand in conforming us to the image of your dear Son. And we praise you and bless your name for, the, for all the multitude of your blessings towards us and your grace and mercy that you haven't rewarded us according to our sins or repaid us according as our iniquities deserve. We found grace and mercy in Christ Jesus through the blood of his cross. And we bless your name for that. I pray that you'd stir in our hearts both comfort and conviction. And for each person, the measure of each of those things is necessary so that we can all say at the end of our life that we've run the race, that we've finished it, that we've kept the faith, and that we each one might have a glorious crown to present to you at your feet. Lord, have mercy on our failures, on our presumptuous sins, on our hidden faults. Search us and know us. Try our inmost thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. We praise you for your faithfulness to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.